Well, turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And uh, this morning, uh, we begin a, a brief sermon series entitled Life Together in Community based on these five verses. And it's my job uh, this morning to simply introduce our topic, to uh, set uh, this passage in context so that in the upcoming weeks, our men can uh, help us understand and apply the specifics from these verses. And so with that said, let's, uh, let's read our passage together, beginning in verse 42 of chapter 2, Luke says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As Chris Armstrong wrote for Christianity Today, he said, Our world would be poor without two other worlds, Narnia and Middle Earth. Yet if two young professors had not met at an otherwise ordinary Oxford faculty meeting in 1926, those wondrous lands would still be unknown to us. He goes on to write that at the outset, Lewis had a very rational knockdown technique in his rhetorical approach to philosophical questions. He was a deeply imaginative man, but Lewis had no way of bringing together that imaginative side of his nature with his rational side. And what Tolkien did was to help Lewis see how these two sides, reason and imagination, could be integrated. During the two men's night conversations on the Addison Walk in the grounds of Magdalen College, Tolkien showed Lewis how the, two, uh, how the two things could be reconciled in the gospel narratives. The gospels had all the qualities of great human storytelling, but they portrayed a true event. God the storyteller entered his own story in the flesh and brought a joyous conclusion from a tragic situation. Suddenly Lewis could see that the nourishment he had always received from great myths and fantasy stories was just a taste of that greatest true story. Of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So Tolkien brought the imagination right into the center of Lewis's life. And then through a gradual process, Lewis learned how to communicate Christian faith in imaginative writing. And the results were Narnia, The Great Divorce, The Space Trilogy, and so forth. Now, I realize that this illustration breaks down in a lot of ways. I'm aware of, I'm aware of that. But I think you get the point of the illustration. Through the tight-knit community of these two men, the church is better off. The world is better off. And I could continue and fill an entire hour about how Lewis impacted Tolkien as well. But this is a perfect illustration 
or it's a good illustration of the kind of community that God calls us to. The idea of community is God's idea. It's at the heart of the Christian faith. How the very Godhead himself interacts and relates. His body, the church, we are just a shadow of the greater reality which exists in heaven and has always existed with the triune God. God loves community. God himself has always existed in community. And he calls his church to dwell in community. In way of background, uh, today's passage is placed contextually on the heels of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Pentecost, which simply means 50th, occurred 10 days after the ascension of Christ. It was the 50th day after Passover, or in this case, Jesus' death. And according to Luke, in chapter uh, 1, verse 4, Jesus told the apostles, you remember what he told them? He told them to wait. To wait on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then he tells them in chapter 1, verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. On the day of Pentecost, Luke says in chapter 2, verse 2, that there came from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house. It brought tongues of fire. And this caused a stir in the community. The foreign Jews and proselytes were amazed because even though they were hearing these tongues, they were hearing them in their own language without the help or the aid of any human interpreter. The Spirit was the interpreter. Thus fulfilling what Peter would would soon uh, preach In his sermon, and what Joel prophesied, that God was going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And we have here at Pentecost the first great sermon of the New Testament church. Not too flashy, not really overstated. Peter preached Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Peter preached Christ crucified, dead, buried, and raised with power. And the passage says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a result, many that day, according to Acts 2, 37, were were cut to the heart. They were saved. They asked, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 souls were added that day. So our passage here gives us a picture of community in the New Testament. This passage helps us to see the corporate nature of God's work among His people. You know, we have a lot of Christian cliches and phrases, don't we? Especially in the South, in the Bible Belt. And one of those uh, Christian uh, cliche phrases is, is personal relationship with the Lord, right? Now, is there truth in that? Is it a good thing? It really is. In fact, I'll say for all adults and for all children sitting here, if, if you were to know Christ, if you were to be uh, 
a child of the King, if you were to go to heaven, you're going to go to heaven because you personally walk with Christ, because you personally have a relationship with God. That's true. Kids, you're not going to go to heaven because your parents love Jesus. You're going to go to heaven because you personally walk with the Lord, because you personally love Jesus Christ more than you love anything else. When I talk to my kids about salvation, that's the terms in which I share it. However, and you guys know this, um, too much emphasis is placed on the personal in America. The corporate nature of the community of faith has all but been lost. And when you try to regain it, don't be surprised that you're held in suspect. Don't be surprised when there's kickback. Don't be surprised, Grace Fellowship, when you're labeled a cult. Because people in America do not like the corporate nature of the church. They don't like accountability. They don't like the one another's of Scripture. In America, I'm my own man. In America, I make my own rules. In America, I hate authority. I hate accountability. We're individualistic people. We don't like life together. One pastor said it rightly when he said, to think correctly is to think corporately. Community in the New Testament looked like this. The apostles were waiting together. The apostles were praying together. The apostles received the Spirit while they were together. The apostles made public proclamation together. And when they were gathered into the local visible church, they lived life together. God calls us to life together in community. So we see community here in the New Testament church in our Acts 2 passage. From the very first moment of its existence, the early church was living out its faith together. But let's take a moment and just walk back a bit and see not only community in the New Testament church, but community in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. And to understand this, we're going to have to go uh, back a little bit and put Acts 2 in, in, in context in terms of Pentecost. Uh, we have to understand it a bit, what it was fulfilling Pentecost was the second of three festivals in Israel that required uh, Jews to actually travel to Jerusalem. Every other festival uh, besides those could be observed in their own hometown. And these feasts are explained in Leviticus 23, but they display for us the nature of community in Israel. Passover, the first feast, celebrated God's deliverance and redemption of the firstborn children of Israel. Jesus' death on the cross fulfilled Passover. He died at Passover. Jesus' blood, His sacrifice, was applied to those who would believe at the cross. Just like Israel applied the blood of a lamb to their doorpost in Egypt. And on a side note, the Feast of First Fruits, which coincides with Passover, it happened in the same week. Jesus' re resurrection fulfilled first fruits. Paul even calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Now, the second major festival, the Feast of Weeks, corresponds to Pentecost. And this feast celebrated God's provision in giving grain. But as time went on, it became more associated with thanksgiving for the giving of the law. And this is interesting because Christians don't celebrate the law. I mean, we celebrate the one who gave the law or who fulfilled the law for us. But in the law, we see... Death. We see that the law brings about death. So it's interesting, it's fitting that God chose this festival, one set aside to give thanks primarily for the giving of the law, to bring the pervasive spirit of life, to bring the Holy Spirit. This feast, the Feast of Weeks, was a celebration of Exodus 19. And I'm going to ask you to turn there right now. Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1. This is where the Israelites, uh, they have left Egypt and they're encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we won't read this entire chapter, but uh, we'll read a few key verses. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Now let's skip over to verse 10 real quick. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Now let's skip over to verse 16. Verse 16, On the morning of the third day there were thunders, and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they, they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. All right, so now it's at this point that God gives the law. And what you see in this passage is a shadow of what was to come at Pentecost. In verse 16, you have loud sounds. You have thunder. You have lightning. You have rumblings. You have smoke that filled the place. And there was a a great stir in the camp, bringing everybody together. Are, Are you seeing it? The people trembled at the power of God. This is all fulfilled in Acts at Pentecost. The community you see here in the Old Covenant with Israel is at least a type, if not a shadow, of the New Testament church. And, I, and I, I talked with Carlton Weathers about this, and he had some great insight. I appreciate his insight on this. There are great differences, though. 
First of all, in the Old Covenant, Israel's community was largely nationalistic. But in the New Covenant, there are no borders. The gospel goes out to every tribe, nation, and tongue. We have people in our church of every nationality, every ethnicity, every class. We have rich people, we have poor people, men, women. We have people with advanced degrees. We have people with very little formal education. The community of God is expressed in highly diverse ways. Another difference is our head. Under the, in the community of Israel, the head was Moses. But in the, new in the New Testament community, Jesus Christ is the head. We are gathered under our head, Jesus Christ. Moses being a type of Christ. Where Moses interceded for the people, now Christ intercedes for us. We no longer have to have an intercessor like Moses or any other priest to approach God on our behalf. We do that directly through Jesus Christ, our head, the head of the church. Another difference is that the Spirit fell on a few distinct people within the camp of Israel. But now the new covenant, in the new covenant, the Spirit is more pervasive. The baptism of the Holy Spirit has always been the regenerating agent in believers, no matter what era. But the subsequent feeling of the Spirit is now available to all believers who seek the Lord. So we see a vital community existing in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. But community wasn't just evident in Israel. It doesn't just go back that far. We can walk back even further to see God's heart for community in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. This time we see how it relates to God Himself. The fact that God was relating with the newly created man and woman, with Himself, walking with them, enjoying community with them in the cool of the day. But we don't just have to stop there. We can walk back even further, even further than the creation of man. Because God has always existed in community. Community has always existed in the Godhead. Our triune God has always lived in perfect harmony and community. This is what Jesus said in John 17, 5. You don't have to turn there. John 17, 5. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And this is what he says. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Did you catch that? Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Community has always existed in the Godhead before anyone was created. The Father has always been glorifying the Son. The Son has always been glorifying the Father. The Spirit has always been magnifying the Son. Living in perfect harmony. Living in perfect community. And, and when we are created, you know, you hear a lot of wrong thinking about why we're created. Some, maybe people taking some secondary reasons or secondary results of creation and applying them primarily. And it's wrong-headed thinking like we are created 
to praise God. The angels are created to praise. Now that's a good thing. But is that the primary reason? Because I'm going to tell you, my belief is that God is perfectly self-sufficient in himself, needing nothing. So why were the angels created? Why were men created? Men were created to enjoy this self-giving love of the Trinity, to enjoy this community that existed in the Godhead for all eternity. That's why we were created. And let me note that what we see here in Acts and what we experience together today is just a prelude of what's to come. And I appreciate Aaron's insight on this. We talked about this the other day. Ultimately, we Christians are looking forward. We are looking ahead to our community in the eternal state. You read the Revelation and you see a picture of those from every tribe, nation, and tongue before the throne of God. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine the mighty rushing wind? Can you imagine the mighty roar? Can you imagine the tongues of those from every nation and you understand it? Can you imagine the eternal fellowship, the eternal community, the eternal worship that we're going to experience? And the great thing about it, think about that in terms of of freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from our envious leanings, freedom from our jealousies, freedom from our, from our hatred, our, our selfishness, just freedom from sin. Once and for all, we will be able to enjoy God Enjoy each other apart from the, the sin that is so destructive to all of our relationships. We'll finally love like God loves. Amen. There were four primary areas of focus in the early church. This is what they did primarily. Number one, they focused on the apostles' teaching. Number two, they focused on the fellowship. Number three, they focused on the breaking of bread. And number four, they focused on prayers. Luke continues to say in our passage that awe came upon every soul. That many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It says that they cared for each other in very tangible, physical ways. He says day by day they attended the temple together, praising God together. And eating in homes. They were praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And notice that after uh, the people were added, they were saved and added. They were added to the local visible church. One of the biggest problems for the church today is that we've lost sight of what's really, what's really important. We've lost sight of Acts chapter 2. We have found replacements for all these things. When what's really important is stated right there. And Satan is well aware of it. Satan is perfectly content 
with all of us doing the almost most important things. When we do that, when we do the things that look like a church, when we do the things that are almost like a church, Satan has us where he wants us. He's content having us do the almost most important things. The church's greatest challenge today is pragmatism. The all-out pursuit for what works, regardless of whether it's biblical or not. There's a great temptation. And don't be deceived that the temptation isn't here. The great temptation is for us to be like social clubs. The great temptation is for us to be like a business. The great temptation is for us to be uh, like a school where we just learn a bunch of heady stuff. The great temptation is for us to, uh, to be like a concert hall and nothing else. But that's not what we see here in Acts 2. And don't get me wrong, we need organization. You even see more organization taking place as the New Testament goes on, don't you? At the beginning, you don't see, see any organization. And as the New Testament's uh, taking place, as it's going, you see, you see more structure taking We need that. I would even say that certain programs and certain ministries are good. What's sinful is when your programs and when your ministries are not means, but they're the end. That's when they become sinful. And they divert us from real community. So what about community at Grace Fellowship? First of all, I would say that Grace Fellowship has a whole lot going right. If you compare yourself to the Scripture, you apply the Scripture. Grace Fellowship is one that holds to the Apostles' teaching. Grace Fellowship is a people that uh, desire godly, doctrinal, biblical teaching. And don't kid yourself, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Grace Fellowship is careful to see most anyone through almost any crisis. You are a benevolent church. I fully realize that many of you gave up a whole lot to see me through cancer treatment. Micah's Hope Fund is established because of your benevolence. Because you rallied around that little life, little Micah Fleming. And I could, I could just give other ways, and if I allowed you, we could just take hours just giving testimony of how the body, the body has rallied around you in times of need, in times of crisis. So that's a good thing. With that said, let me say that there's still times where there's too much individualism. Jesus prayed in John 17, we read it earlier, that God glorify me with the glory that, that existed between us before the world began. And then a few verses later in John 17, 11, he, he follows that up and says that we would be one 
even as He and the Father are one. Praying that you and I would be one, even as He and the Father are one. When you cherish Christ above everything else, community looks different. Community feels different. I can feel it when my brothers and sisters are walking with the Lord. When they're cherishing Christ above all else, it affects me. Does it affect you? Does it make a difference? When, when my brothers are learning something new, or they, they have a, a word f- from the Scripture for me, and they call me and they say, Hey Dave, man, I learned this today. I want to share this with you. All right, Dave, I was thinking about you here with this, what you got going on here. And I just wanted to give you a, a word of encouragement. I want to give you a word of exhortation. If it's, I, I need to give you a word of rebuke. When my brothers and sisters are passionately in love with God, it affects me. It changes me. And I know that through speaking with many of you that there are times that you feel really alone. And and may that feeling change because we all, first and foremost, love Christ. We need to be careful, Grace Fellowship, of being a people who love prophecy and reproof and knowledge more than we love God. When you look at the early church, it seems as though they had community because they were filled with the Spirit. They had community with each other because they had community with God. Likewise, when we're not filled with the Spirit, community's not what it should be. When we're not communing with the Lord, we're not in community with one another. In wrapping up our time of application, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 24, starting in the middle of the verse. Unity is accomplished for the most part through love. Paul says that love is greater than anything we bring to the table, whether it be gifts or, or talents or, or whatever. Paul calls love the more excellent way. And we just talked about the unity displayed in John 17 with the Godhead and how the disciples were supposed to be unified. But here in 1 Corinthians, uh, starting in 12, uh, Paul helps us to put some flesh on this concept of unity. Starting in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 24, uh, halfway through the verse, Paul says, But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? 
Listen to this. Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Here we go. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So Paul in chapter 4, in verse 4, has up to that point said that we can be the most talented, we can be the most uh, smart, gifted, serving, biblically minded people in the church. We could even be martyrs, but if we don't have love, we don't have anything. And then he characterizes what love really is. He says love is patient. Are you patient? Are you patient with people? Or do you have a short fuse? Do you allow the Spirit to move in people's lives? Do you give the Spirit room to work and sanctify and bring people along? Are you patient? It says, love is kind. Is your life marked by kindness? Does your life display the love of God to people that don't really like you? God's loving kindness was displayed this way to us. In that while we hated Him, God loved us. It says, love does not envy or boast. Are you envious? Are you jealous? Are you jealous of others' friends? Of others' talents? Of others' looks or possessions? Or just their life? Jealousy is a cancer. It invades and it spreads and it will tear a church apart. Do you boast? Are you braggy? Are you constantly lifting yourself up? Love is not arrogant or rude. Are you arrogant? Are you rude? Are you one to reach out and shake a hand or give a hug or speak a greeting? Just common acts of courtesy. Are you polite? Do you consider other people's feelings? Because these, these kind of things really display our heart. Don't put your nose in the air. Be humble. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. 
Love does not insist on its own way. Are you flexible? Or is it your way or the highway? You're in a group of people, you're trying to get something done, and they're not doing it your way, so you pick up your toys and you go home. You know, when you're in a community, it demands that you be flexible. When you're in a community, there's a whole lot of things we do that I don't like, that are really frustrating. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. God is really stepping on my toes here. Love is not irritable or resentful. Are you irritable? Do people around you feel like they have to walk on eggshells? Are you too emotionally fragile? Are you too easily frustrated? Are you resentful? Is the list of the folks that you can hang out with getting shorter and shorter because you're constantly tallying all the wrongs? It's a lot, but now, I've got about two or three people that I can hang out with now. Everyone else has ticked me off, so we're done with that. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Are you actually happy when people struggle? Are you inwardly rejoicing when people sin? Or do you rejoice with the truth? Would you give anything, and I mean anything, to see your brothers and sisters walk with the Lord? Even your own comfort. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Community demands that we have some stick to itness. Community demands that we stick with each other in relational troubles. Community demands openness, it demands patience, it demands bearing things that you would just soon not bear. Things that you would rather go around and gossip about, let everybody else know, uh, run people under the bus, all of those things. But we stick with each other through hard situations. We don't walk away. We believe the best about each other. Not saying we don't rebuke. But Grace Fellowship is pretty good at rebuking. We believe the best about each other. We're not too quick to jump to negative assumptions and pick people apart. Instead, we are optimistic that the Spirit will move, that the Spirit will sanctify, that the Spirit will change. He's talking to a bunch of people that were a mess. And in the greeting of the letter, do you know what he called them? To those who are sanctified. Above all, we, we persevere with each other. So in closing, I would just propose that if we have community problems, then it's probably because we have love problems. 
If we aren't devoted to the community of Christ, it's probably because we're not completely devoted to Christ. And so my question to you is, do you love God? Do you cherish God? Do you cherish Christ? And if so, how are you expressing that to those around you? You know, it says in our passage that the early church, does it say it says that they devoted themselves to these things. They didn't devote everybody else. They devoted themselves to these things. It also says that everybody functioned this way. There was a plurality of this happening. It wasn't a few people. This was everyone who devoted themselves or the plurality that devoted themselves because they were compelled by people always being a nag. Right? That's what it says. People were nagging me, so I felt compelled and I did it. It doesn't say that, right? Who were they compelled by? It says compelled by the Spirit. So as our men continue to to flesh out the specifics of this passage over the next month, we all need to be praying. Because this is is a good issue for us right now. This is a good issue for, for Grace Fellowship. And we just need to be praying that we'll be challenged, that we'll be sanctified. And your, and your pastors do have some practical ways that, uh, that we want to share with you, that we want to help uh, improve in this area of community. And, and we won't talk about that right now. We may talk about that as the month goes. But let's just suffice it to say that we're working and we're praying. And uh, we desire this for Grace Fellowship. And we're just praying that God will be glorified as, as we're sanctified as, and as he, as he builds His church. Let's pray.